You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Joyce Carol Oates. This program originally aired in 2011. This is Word of Mouth on New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, Joyce Carol Oates, one of America's most prolific and decorated authors from Writers on a New England Stage. Articles and introductions to Oates invariably begin with her almost dizzying output. More than 50 novels and dozens of collections of short stories, poems, plays, and essays. She's a kind of Wonder Woman of American letters, appearing on the cover of Newsweek, winning book awards, and inspiring conversations about race, sex, and violence in the public sphere. Throughout, Joyce was married to Raymond Smith, an editor and publisher. In February of 2008, after more than 47 years of marriage, Raymond Smith died suddenly. Her newest best-selling book tells the story of the grief, depression, and unraveling of a woman who, despite her public persona, regarded herself first as a wife. Joyce Carol Oates read from a widow story in front of a live audience at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. In the 19th century and perhaps earlier, there was this concept, this phenomenon of looking for the soulmate, and much of romantic poetry sort of evokes the other as a mysterious other, and great novels like Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights are very much about the male-female soulmates that, that are seeking one another. And I think in writing, we seek that too. It's as if there's some shadowy self that's on the other side of the window pane, and, and we try to see it a little more clearly. After my husband died in February 2008, I sort of went into this limbo, this netherworld, and I wasn't able to write very coherently. I wasn't able to sleep, and at night I would, I would write in my journal. I always had had a journal, and it became a solace. And the journal or diary, I think, is, is a very helpful thing for anyone. If you lead a life that's very busy and fragmented, and you would think to yourself, I don't have time to write in a journal, you're probably the very person who should do it. And it really could just be 10 or 15 minutes every night before you go to bed where you just have this ledger, this notebook you might be writing in, or it could just be pieces of paper, which is what I do. I, I just have sheets of paper that I write on. And there's something about the act of writing in, with longhand that's calming and, and makes your thoughts coherent. It's probably a neurological phenomenon, too. And though I wasn't able to imagine fiction and wasn't able to structure or even think about structuring a, a novel, novel has a very, most novels have fairly complicated structure. The kinds of novels I've been interested in are long and have extremely complicated structures. I wasn't able to, to do that anymore, but I could work in the journal. And so the journal becomes a kind of breathless place, a repository of things that happen during the day and in the beginning, when my husband was in the hospital, the first parts are about the vigil. And we've all had hospital vigils, and everyone in this room has, has had this experience. You don't know how they're going to turn out. And so there's this air of, of hope that's tempered by dread, or dread tempered by hope. And, and the two are sort of in contention. So I was able to write that, and then I assembled a lot of pages in the journal, just every night writing kind of compulsively, late at night. And then about a year later, in, in the summer of 2009, I still wasn't able to quite think about a novel. And so I went back to the journal and took these different little chapters and, and put them together into a kind of coherent whole. So a widow's story is not a memoir in the sense of being an autobiography where a person sits down and writes something from the beginning. You could have something that began with when my husband died, comma, you know, and then go on from there. But when I started this book, it was before he had died in the state of, of suspension and not knowing what would happen. So the first little chapter that I'm going to read is called Memory Pools. It's only about a page long. Memory Pools. Forever after you are recognized those places, previously invisible and indiscernible, where memory pools accumulate. 
all waiting areas of hospitals, hospital rooms, and in particular, those regions of the hospital reserved for the very ill, telemetry and intensive care. You will not wish to return to these places where memory pools lie underfoot treacherous as acid, in the corners of such places, in the shadows, in stairwells, in elevators, in corridors and in restrooms you have memorized without your knowing, in the hospital gift shop, at the newsstand, where you linger staring at news headlines already passing into oblivion as you peruse them, while upstairs in your sick husband's hospital room, an attendant is changing bedclothes or sponge bathing the patient, unless the patient has been taken to radiology for further x-rays. Memory pools accumulate beneath chairs and waiting areas adjacent to telemetry, and maybe that actual tears have stained the tile floors or soaked into the carpets of such places. It may be that these tears can never be removed, and everywhere the odor of melancholy that is the very odor of memory. Nowhere in a hospital can you walk without blundering into the memory pools of strangers, the dread of what was imminent in their lives, their false hopes, the wild elation of their hopes, their sudden, terrible, and irrefutable knowledge. You would not wish to hear echoes of their whispered exchanges. But he was looking so well yesterday. What has happened to him overnight? You would not wish to blunder into another sorrow. You will have all that you can do to resist your own. And the next little chapter, it's a little longer, several pages long, it's called I'm Not Crying for Any Reason, quote. The book's divided into these little chapters. They're really mini chapters. Some of them are like prose poems. I shouldn't say prose poems, because people get terrified if they think they have to, that they might... <laughs> And my editor or my publisher would say, oh, <laughs> don't say that, you know. But they're, they're sort of organized around images and little things that happen rather than, than uh, this overview. I'm not crying for any reason. February 17, 2008. This morning at 7.50 a.m. arriving at the hospital, ascending in the elevator at the fifth floor, turn left into telemetry, Breathless, hurrying, eager to see my husband. For always the first glimpse of a hospital patient in his room in his bed unobserved is fraught with meaning. Carrying the hefty Sunday New York Times for us to read together, and at the farther end of the now-familiar corridor, past the now-familiar nurse's station, there is room 541. There is Ray's bed, empty, just a stripped bare mattress. Mrs. Smith, your husband is in room 539. Just this morning he was moved. We tried to call you, but you must have left home. And so entering this room, which evidently I passed a moment ago without glancing inside, I'm trembling so visibly that Ray wonders what's wrong with me. The blood has drained from my face. I'm trembling in the aftermath of a shock as profound as any I've ever experienced. Or am I trembling in the aftermath of relief? For here is Ray in the new bed, in the new room, a room identical to the previous room with the same bedside table and the, on the table the vase of flowers from friends. He's no longer wearing the oxygen mask, nor even the nasal inhaler. Uh, my husband was, was committed to the hospital with pneumonia. Uh, we didn't know what was wrong with him. He just couldn't breathe very well, and he had a very high temperature. So I drove into the hospital in Princeton, with, uh, without, no, with, we thought he'd be there overnight, and he was annoyed at going to the hospital, and he took some work along with him. And then he was diagnosed with pneumonia, and it, it was, treat, it was treating, being treated quite well, and all these doctors would come in and out of the room, the infectious disease specialists, and they all had their campaigns. They isolate the bacteria. They, they, they identify the bacteria, and then they have the medication to deal with it. And, and there's such a feeling of energy and hope and kind of zealousness as armies are being sort of mobilized to deal with this invisible killing thing that's very, very tiny and microscopic. But anyway, he was doing better and his oxygen take has improved. The possibility of his being discharged from the hospital next Tuesday. He smiles at me and greets me, Hi, honey. But when I lean over the bed to kiss him, a wave of faintness sweeps over me, and suddenly I begin to cry, uncontrollably crying, for the first time since bringing me to the hospital. 
My face is contorted like a child's in the throes of an agonized weeping. I'm not crying for any reason, but only because I love you. So I managed to stammer to Ray, because I love you so much. And Ray's eyes swell with tears, too, and he murmurs what sounds like something like this. I'll be knocked out for two months. Like drowning swimmers, we are clutching at each other. Someone passing in the corridor outside sees us and looks quickly away. Never have I cried so hard and so helplessly, never in my adult life. And why am I crying? Is it pure that of sense of relief? Something like this, knocked out for two months. Always I will remember these words, for this is how Ray assesses the situation. Pneumonia has interrupted his life. These days in the hospital in his weakened state will result in his editing work being slowed and delayed. He was the editor of Ontario Review, which was a literary magazine we published for many years. It start, we started in 1974 in Ontario. And it was our, our vision to have a literary magazine that would publish both Canadian and American writers in a, a kind of fluid way without demarking either one sort of a North American Journal of the Arts. And he, he loved his magazine, and his writers loved him. Then we started the press in about 1984. So Ray always had work to do, and he was always working, and he loved reading and editing, and he took things to the hospital, and I kept bringing things also. And so he was thinking that he, he would be ill, his illness would make him slow, and he would be late with the May issue. Maybe Ray isn't capable of thinking of himself in the terms of which I can think of him. Maybe no man is capable of thinking of himself in the terms of which a woman can think of him. Then there's a little section where Ray is in the hospital corridor and he's having therapy, walking and pulling the IV, the gurney along with the IV tube. And the therapist is walking with him, encouraging him. How bizarre all this would have seemed to us a week ago now he's in hospital pajamas, trying not to wince with pain, leaning on a young woman's therapist's arm. As he's walking unsteadily and leaning on the therapist, but he is walking, I'm thinking, don't fall, please don't fall. In the hospital corridor, it isn't uncommon to see patients walking slowly with or without therapists, tugging ivy gurneys in their wake. All these days and hours, the ivy line has been embedded into Crook of Ray's bruised right arm, dripping in the antibiotic that, like a magic potion in a Grimm's fairy tale, has the power to save his life. Attendant arrives to take Ray to radiology for x-rays. It seems that, quote, a secondary infection of mysterious origin, nothing to worry about, has appeared in Ray's left lung, which is to say, in his previously uninfected lung. But is this bacterial too? How matter-of-factly the adjective rose off my tongue, bacterial, as if I knew what I was talking about. As one might say, infinity, light, you are a trillion billion stars in the naive speech of the non-scientist. The smiling young attendant says with a bright smile she lavishes on all patients and relatives who ask such naive questions. Ma'am, I don't know. The doctor will tell you. Bacterial. One thing I've come to know, the nightmare vigil has so impressed me for life, we are not so much surrounded by invisible and very greedy life forms as enveloped by them at every instant of our lives and before our births in the womb. We're flesh vessels for these microscopic life forms that require us for warmth for, and for nourishment. The bacteria that benefit us, we call, with anthropomorphic instinct, good. These bacteria we seek to ravage us and destroy us, we call bad. It is utterly naive and futile and uninformed to think that our species exceptional, so designated to master the beasts of the earth as in the book of Genesis. Infection is another problematic term, for by definition any infection is bad, but some are not so bad as others. Mr. Smith, can you tilt your head this way? That's great. One of the nurses is shaving raised jaws that have grown stubbly. This is a task I might have done for Ray myself if we thought of it. I could have brought him the right sort of mirror. He might have shaved himself. Your husband is very handsome, Mrs. Smith, but you know that. Without his glasses and his eyes closed, Ray does look handsome. His cheeks are lean and unremarkably unlined. His forehead is marred by faintest frown lines, scarcely visible. As the nurse deftly shaves him and wipes away lather, I feel a sense of unease that Ray is becoming adjusted to the hospital setting ever more comfortable with the eerie passivity such setting evokes. As in Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain, in which the young German Hans Karstrup 
arrives as a visitor at the tuberculosis sanitarium in the Swiss Alps in the decade before the outbreak of World War I, and as if in a fairy tale enchantment, he stays for seven years. After Ray is shaved, he re returns to the New York Times scattered across the bed. The visit to ra radiology seems to have had no discernible effect upon him. Both his arms are bruised and discolored from blood drawing. Even for a stoic, the constant blood drawing is becoming painful, but he doesn't complain. Ray isn't one to complain. And how does the remainder of the Sunday pass? Languidly reading, talking, listening to choral music played on the Sunday arts channel on TV. Once listening to a recording of Mozart's Requiem Mass, Ray had remarked in the bravado way in which, when we're young, we might speak of dying and death as if we have not the slightest fear of it. Promise me you'll play that at my funeral. But you said the same thing about Verity's Requiem Mass. I did? This was years ago in another lifetime. We were living on Sherburn Road in Detroit. In a hospital on this February afternoon in 2008, I don't want to think of this, of our innocence and ignorance. Hospital vigils inspire us to such nostalgia. They take place in slow time, during which the mind floats free, a frail balloon drifting into the sky as into infinity. In the late afternoon of Sunday, February 17, 2008, as dusk comes on and deepens to night, it's decided between us that I will go home early today and return early in the morning. How exhausted I am suddenly, though this has been Ray's best day in the hospital so far, and we're feeling almost exhilarated. He'll be discharged to the rehab clinic on Tuesday, a few days in rehab and then home by next Friday, next weekend. I kiss my husband goodnight, my very nice husband with his smooth saving jaws. It is not an extraordinary leave-taking, for it feels so very temporary. I will be returning to this room so soon. Good night. I love you. And the last chapter I'll read is called The Call. February 18th, 2008, the call comes at 12.38 a.m., waking me from sleep and phone ringing at the wrong time. There had long been the dread when my parents were alive and elderly and their health crises escalating of the phone ringing late at the wrong time. We all know this dread. There's no escape from this dread. For finally I'd been able to fall asleep in our bed with the light out. We'd been feeling so hopeful when I left the hospital. The first time since Monday I was able to shut my eyes to sleep. And now this feels like punishment. My punishment for being unguarded, for leaving the hospital early. Stunned and dry mouthed, I stumble from bed and pick up the telephone. Hello? But the caller is hung up. A wrong number? Desperately, I want to think so. Almost immediately, the phone rings again, and when I pick it up, it's to hear the words, a stranger's voice, the words I've been dreading since the nightmare vigil began, informing me that your husband, Raymond Smith, is in critical condition. His blood pressure has plummeted. His heartbeat has accelerated. The voice is asking if I want extraordinary measures in the event that my husband's heart stops. I am crying, yes, I've told you. I've said, yes, save him. Do anything you can. The voice instructs me to come quickly to the hospital. I ask, is he still alive? Is my husband still alive? Yes, your husband's still alive. And now I am driving into Princeton in the dark of night along Elbridge Road. This is sort of like a dream uh, loop that keeps going on and on. I close my eyes and I see myself driving. Country roads so well traveled by day are deserted by night. No street lights, no oncoming headlights. I'm thinking, this can't be happening. This is not real. The very summons I've been dreading. I'd wish to think with a child's faith in magical thinking that if I dreaded the call, if I imagined the very words of the call, surely then the call could not come. Though I'm desperate to get to Princeton now, to the hospital, I force myself to drive at no more than the speed limit. I'm so, I'm so it would be so disastrous if I have an accident at such a time when Ray is waiting for me. Through a roaring in my ears, the telephone voice has acquired a more urgent tone. Still alive, your husband is still alive. And aloud I say, he is still alive. My husband is still alive. In the voice of wonder and terror and defiance, Ray is still alive. This past week I've fallen into the habit of talking to myself and instructing myself as one might encourage a stumbling child. You can do it. You will be all right. You can do it. You will be all right. When I'd thrown on clothes in the bedroom to prepare for the frantic journey, 
the admonishing voice had lifted into semblance of Bimu's calm. Be careful what you wear. You may be wearing it for a long time. In the ghost-white Honda, I'm veering over the yellow line into the other lane. I'm having difficulty gripping the steering wheel. I'm having difficulty seeing, too. The road ahead in the Honda's headlights look smudged. I think there's something wrong with my vision. It's as if I'm peering through a tunnel. In the periphery of my vision, there are shadowy figures beyond the snow-edged road. I'm afraid of being struck by a deer. Now my life, my voice lifts frightened and thin. Is Ray going to die? Is that possible? I'm not able to acknowledge this possibility as I'm not able to acknowledge the terror I feel and the helplessness, such frustration as I enter Princeton Borough, and the speed limit drops to 25 miles an hour, and moving so slowly, and then waiting for the red light to change at the intersection of Route 206. No traffic on any of the roads, no traffic anywhere, but I'm obliged to wait at the light. I'm too fearful of driving through a red light, too conditioned to obey the law, and at such a time especially. Finally, light changes. I drive to Witherspoon Street. I park in front of the hospital. Desperate, I run to the front door of the hospital, which, of course, is locked. The interior of the hospital is semi-darkened. As whoever had called me didn't make any arrangements for me, didn't tell me what to do, really. Yet more desperate, I run to the ER entrance around the corner. I'm pleading with the security guard to let me into the hospital. I identify myself as the wife of a man in critical condition in the telemetry unit. Several times I give my husband's name, Raymond Smith, Raymond Smith, thinking how astonished Ray would be, how embarrassed that all this is happening. The security guard listens to me politely. He can't let me inside before making a call. This takes some time, precious minutes. Like butterflies with frayed wings, my thoughts fly at me in random and frantic succession. He is still alive. It's all right. He's waiting for me. I will see him. He's still alive. How frustrating this is. How strange. Whoever called to summon me to the hospital hasn't made any arrangement for me to be allowed inside. So maybe there's a mistake. The wife of Raymond Smith isn't supposed to be summoned in the hospital. Someone else is expected. This is sort of thought that you have. But then the security guard informs me that, yes, Mrs. Smith is expected on the fifth floor. I can enter through the door. He opens. And blindly, I run through the door. It sort of reminds me of that story of Kafka's or the end of, maybe it's the end of the trial. A door is finally open, and you, and you, and you rush through, and it's sort of like into one's execution. And into the lobby, which is so strange now because it's all dark and there's nobody there, and I go to the elevator, and that also seems to take a long time, and everything's empty. Stepping out of the elevator, I'm terribly frightened, turning left for telemetry. I taste cold at the back of my mouth. This can't be happening. Of course, Ray will be all right. In telemetry, there's no one around except at the nurse's station. In my distraction, I don't see any nurses I know. By the way they regard me with impassive faces, they must know why I am here at this time of night when no visitors are allowed in the hospital. And now at the farther end of the corridor outside my husband's room, I see a sight that terrifies me. Five or six figures, medical workers, standing quietly outside the open door as if they had been awaiting me. As I approach, one of them steps forward, a young woman doctor. Silently, she points into the room, and in that instant, I know. I know that for all my frantic hurrying, I've come too late. For all my scrupulosity in driving at the speed limit, waiting for the light to change like a program robot, I've come too late. In a trance, I enter the room, this room I'd left only a few hours before in utter naivete and ignorance, kissing my smooth-cheeked husband Good night. But now Ray is not sitting up in his bed waiting for me. He is not waiting for me at all, but lying on his back, motionless in the hospital bed, which has been lowered. I'm shocked to see that something's not right here. Ray's eyes are closed, his ashen face is slack. The IV tube has been removed from his arm. There's no oxygen monitor. There's no cardiac monitor. The room is still. Ray's eyelids don't flutter as I enter, and his lips don't twitch in a smile. I don't hear his words. Hi, honey. Numbly, I come to the bed. I'm speaking his name. I'm pleading with him as a child might. Oh, honey, what has happened to you? What has happened? Honey? Poor Ray seems so very lifelike. There's no anguish or even strain in his face. His face is relaxed and unlined. His hair is not disheveled. It is true he has lost weight this past week, 
There are hollows beneath his eyes, which are beautiful eyes, gray-blue. I'm leaning over him as he lies motionless beneath a sheet. I hold him. I'm in frantic holding him, kissing him. I'm crying for him, urging him to wake up. This is me. This is Joyce. This is your wife. I'm pleading with him for where he is, is one to be coaxed and persuaded. He's not a stubborn man. He's not an inflexible man. If he could, he would open his eyes and greet me. I know. He would murmur something amusing and ironic. I know. I hold him for as long as I can, and I'm crying. His skin is still warm, but beginning to cool. I'm thinking, this is not possible. This is a mistake. I'm tempted to shake Ray and laugh with him. This is not possible. Wake up. For never in our lives together has anything so extraordinary happened between us. Never has anything in our lives together so divided us. I am telling him that I love him. I love him so much. I have always loved him. But now the young woman doctor enters the room quietly. The others remain in the hall looking in. In a lowered voice in which each word is enunciated with precision, the young woman doctor, whose name I don't remember, I will never remember, explains to me that everything possible has been done to save my husband, who had died just minutes ago. He'd gone into unexpected cardiac arrest. His blood pressure had plummeted. His heartbeat had accelerated. It was a secondary infection and not the original infection that had driven up his fever within just the past few hours. His left lung was invaded. His bloodstream was invaded. Though they tried very hard, there was nothing more to be done. I'm too stunned to reply. I'm too confused to know whether I am supposed to reply. It's very difficult to hear the woman's voice through this roaring in my ears. I think I must look distraught and crazed. The blood is drained from my face and my eyes are leaking tears, but I'm not crying in a normal way. With what frayed remnant remains of my sense of social decorum, I am trying to determine what is the proper response in this situation. What is it that I must say or do? What is expected of me? It won't be until later, days later, that I realize that Ray died among strangers. All of these medical workers gathered in the corridor outside his room, strangers. Dr. I is not there. Dr. B is not there. Dr. S, Ray's cardiologist for years, is not there. None of the other ID, infectious disease specialists, who drop by to examine Ray and speak with me is here. Smiling Nurse Shannon, of whom Ray was so fond, is not here. It is 1.08 a.m., late Sunday night. None of the senior medical staff is on duty at such an hour. Not one of these medical workers, including a young woman doctor, is more than 30 years old. I will not hear from any of the staff who had become acquainted with Ray this past week in telemetry. Not even Dr. B, who was the admitting physician, and whose signature I will discover on the death certificate, noting that Raymond J. Smith died of cardiopulmonary arrest, complications following pneumonia, 12.50 a.m., February 18, 2008. It is the most horrific thought. My husband died among strangers. I was not with him to comfort him, to touch him or hold him. I was asleep, miles away, asleep. The enormity of this fact is too much to comprehend. I will feel I will spend the remainder of my life trying to grasp it. Mrs. Smith, the young woman doctor, touches my arm. She's telling me if I want to stay long with my husband, she will leave me. In the corridor, the others have dispersed. I am staring at Ray, who has not moved, nor even his eyelids have fluttered since I've entered the room. The young doctor repeats what she said to me, and from a long distance, I manage to hear her and to reply, Thank you, I will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good evening. Joyce Carol Oates, what an honor to be here with you this evening, and um, so moving to hear what you read. Thank you very much. You. you talked about writing, keeping your journal, and there's a point in the book where a friend asks you, how's your writing doing? And you think, I can't even write a thank you note, <laughs> you know, forget my writing. What broke through? When did you decide, I have to write this memoir? Well, I think it was basically that I wasn't really able to write. I um, wasn't able to write fiction, so I was sort of writing what I could write. You know, there, there are 
times in life where you do, you do what you can do, you know. I was sort of thinking that's like breathing through, you're underwater and you're breathing through a very bent straw and it's not the greatest straw, but basically you can breathe, you know. So it's better than nothing. <laughs> I don't want to sound morbid. One of the experiences that I had was that life seemed very absurd. But I think life probably is absurd and that only at certain times the curtains are drawn away, you know, and you sort of have a sense of the way the world really is. But when you have very wonderful family and, and friends around you, basically you're not really seeing that. So I think when, when you lose them, that, the curtain is kind of torn away. How did you know when you were finished with the writing? That's a good question. Um, I don't know how to answer that because with a journal there is not a natural ending. So in, in the memoir, and I, it's so strange for me to be talking about myself, I basically never, have never written about myself and I've always worked with mediated voices of fiction. The voices of my novels are not my own voice and it seems strange to be talking about my own self and talking about my cats. <laughs> You know, I, and my husband was a very modest man, and I always think that he would be watching and say, what, Joyce, what are you doing, you know? What are you saying, you know? Well, some things shouldn't be talked about. But I guess I wanted, I wanted to write about the experience because it seemed to me that the only experience in my life so far that was like a universal experience that uh, many other people have had or will have are having, and I've gotten all these letters and emails from people who've had almost identical experiences. So I think I got the idea that I would write about something that was a universal experience, though I experienced it in my own way, obviously through my own uh, particular identity, but the experience is a universal. And now, years later, it seems to me that obviously if you're reckless enough to be a wife, you're probably going to be a widow or a widower. I mean, it's just one of these things that when you're living your life, you don't think about these things. But when you're sort of in a posthumous life, I sort of feel I'm in a posthumous position now. You look back on it, you think, well, why were you surprised, you know? But uh, at the time, it's very surprising. It's like people who fall in love and everybody can see it's a dis going to be a disaster, that she will be heartbroken, he will not treat her right. You know, everybody knows that except the lovers don't know it. And then the woman, when that happens, she's grief-stricken and broken, but all her friends are thinking, well, we knew this was going to happen. So it's just one of these things about universal experiences. And so now I really, I read memoirs by, people who've lost loved ones. I mean, I read, it's, it's something that I read very avidly and eagerly and learn, and I actually learn a lot from. But I wouldn't say that I was reading them before. It was like maybe a state of denial that we don't think about certain things. In fact, you write something like, being a widow is punishment for having been a wife, I think. It seems sensible, you know, when you think about it. You're signing on for something, but at the same time, it seems unreal and morbid to think that way, yeah. you know. But I had so many bizarre experiences. I felt that because I was so alone, being alone in a house with these two cats. <laughs> now, maybe if I'd had a nice, cuddly dog <laughs> come running and put his head, his chin on my knee and look up at me lovingly, it made, it made a difference. These cats, you know, I'd be begging them. And I was in my, in my bed at night, I sort of made a little nest out of my bed, and that was really wonderful. It was some sort of really regressive thing that was very wonderful, where I had all manuscripts and some of my student work, because I, I was teaching at the time at Princeton, and the teaching helped me keep going too, because I had to, you know, get dressed, you know, and go down to the university and, and pretend to be the professor. And I had wonderful students. And then I became really over-projecting uh, over much on the students. You know, I sort of lost my sense of proportion. But being just thrilled when a, when a girl had rewritten the story and, and really improved it. 
and like having tears in my eyes. Oh, she did this such a good job. And I'm telling my, my colleagues, oh, she did such a wonderful job. And they're probably thinking, Joyce is completely insane. You know, this is, <laughs> it's, not that, it's not that big a deal. I mean, everything, seemed, everything seemed to loom very large. And uh, writing about it was a way of sort of pinning that down. And, and you also say at some point, much more is expected of the widow of a good man. And I wonder, especially after reading some of these other memoirs of loss, do you think there's any such thing as normal grief? Is there a sort of expected trajectory of time? Well, I think probably there might be. And I think it's helpful to talk to people who have had the experience. Yeah, I think there is a kind of trajectory. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's different for different people, but um, I was really helped by friends. I have two women friends in Princeton. They're, they're in, I talk about them in the memoir. And they've had experience with losing people close in their family. They were very, very helpful. And they know that the one thing that the bereaved person basically is tired, very tired, and not thinking clearly at all. So this person has to be helped to go to probate court and driven around. It's a kindness that you can do for someone in that state. You don't have to chatter. You don't have to talk. In fact, it's better not to talk too much. But there's something that something happens neuro neurologically to your brain. It's like you've been hit in the head with a sledgehammer, and you can't remember where you put things. Where the week before you were perfectly capable of doing all these things, but after this trauma, you, you basically can't do anything. So yeah, I think people can help one another a lot. And then there are a lot of things that one should not do, and, and that's good to know also. Well, what are some of the things besides not send Harry and David gift <laughs> baskets? Oh, I have a long chapter about all this <laughs> grotesque stuff that I got. Um, all these baskets, and again, Ray, Ray had such a droll sense of humor. Uh, all these flowers, I mean, they were just flowers. They were floral displays of the kind you get when you have a winning horse in a... <laughs> in the K Kentucky Derby, you know, like the big floral things. And I would look out the window, and the UPS man would be just leaving, and the FedEx man would be coming. Then a delivery man would be coming with, why? Um, <laughs> this is some sign of, of condolence, I guess. Uh, I just got spooked by Harry and David, the, the big baskets. They have grief baskets. and. The, all this very expensive truffles and special cheeses that you've never heard of. <laughs> a Riviera pear <laughs> shaped like a grotesque parody of a pear, a large waxen object that has no taste. <laughs> it's bread to send to people who've, who've lost a loved one. And it has... So, if you have a Riviera pear coming to you, <laughs> it's too bad. <laughs> so, all this stuff, and I, I imagined how Ray would be watching, and he would say, "What? What's going on here? What is all this special stuff?" And and I had to, th I had to seem to be thanking people. I mean, there was darkness in my heart. Anyway, that went on for a long time. <laughs> Finally, I just stood out by the trash can when the d delivery came, and I would just put some of the stuff in there. I remember comfort ribbons. There's a ribbon that says comfort on it. You know, you, you have a ribbon that says comfort. So you're supposed to ma maybe, maybe wear it. No, no. What do you do with this stuff? Well, you did contemplate wearing a T-shirt that said something like, Yes, my husband died. Yes, yes I'm, I'm sad. I'm sad. We don't get change the subject. That was a little later. I was getting more, I was getting feistier. I was sort of broken and beaten down in the beginning. And when all these things kept coming, I just thought, I have to take out the trash. And I became a trash fetishist. <laughs> and it hasn't lost, I haven't lost it yet. I have a thing about taking out the trash now. I guess it was a, it was a displacement because your whole life has ended. You're, you're, in, you're, you're falling on the ground and you're all in pieces and you're worrying about when the trash pickup is it Tuesday or Thursday, you know. That's just somehow weird ways in which people cope. 
if you could say anything to a new widow, what would you say? Well, there's so many different things to say, and I've gotten a lot of wonderful, wonderful emails. Some people have been widows longer than I have been, and it doesn't, it doesn't get easier. It, it gets something, I don't know how to explain it. There's always that room, and you can always go in that room. It's like you blunder around, and you think the room's not there, and you go through a door, you're back in that room again. So um, it, it doesn't change that much. But right after you've lost someone, there's a little spurt, I think, of, of a lot of energy, getting, like the funeral, and some people have a memorial service. And that's a false, no, it's a real energy, but it's also a false energy. And then that deflates, and you're like a balloon that deflates. And the, the, the widow just has to understand that her, or widower, be the same for a man, I think. The emotions are like the clouds over Lake Ontario, or maybe the... Atlantic Ocean. In other words, the sky is always changing, and you can be devastated with grief and not able to get out of bed. But then a few hours later, you're up, and then you meet somebody, or, the, or you go out, or you do something, and you feel actually good. I was invited out to dinner quite a bit because I had a lot of, we had a lot of friends, and I would feel so lonely and so overwhelmed and just couldn't wait to get home. And sometimes the way people were talking, it was like, you know, in a movie where the camera starts to get surreal and, the, and everything is distorted. And, and people were talking so obsessively at that time about the Democratic campaign presidential. Right, this was 2008. Yeah, it was all Obama and Hillary Clinton. I mean, in Princeton, nobody talked about anything else for months but they only had like four things to say. <laughs> so they just kept saying it over and over. And I mean, I was just sort of sitting there and there's like people playing ping pong past my head. And I thought, oh, wow, what are they talking about? Do they, why do, do they care about this? And not, nothing seemed important to me at all except one's own uh, husband or wife or your parents or your family. That's, that's all that really mattered. I couldn't imagine why they cared so much about these things. I, I, one, one of the things that fascinated me, and it's funny for me to call him Ray, I mean, I didn't know him, but after reading the book, he's Ray. Everyone refers to him as that. And ever since you, you started writing, you never really shared your fiction with him. His, he was an editor, you know, which is astonishing in itself. He read your essays often, maybe poetry. And you say you're astonished at couples like uh, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn or Richard Ford and Christina Ford who share everything. What was the risk there for you? I just feel as I'm writing, working on something that it's very private between me and the, the, um, the mediated voice. Like say, I'm, say I'm working on a short story, which I, I just finished a story recently. And I was invited to participate in an anthology that's set in Los Angeles in the 1940s. It's going to be like a noir anthology. And at first I thought, I told the editor that I didn't really think I could write about that. I didn't know that much about it. Then I realized I had done a lot of research for my novel about Marilyn Monroe, which is called Blonde. So I wrote about, I wrote about Norma Jean Baker, which was Marilyn Monroe's name, and that's who she was. She was Norma Jean Baker. And I wrote about Elizabeth Short, known as the Black Dahlia. Oh, right, okay. So I wrote about the Black Dahlia and the White Rose, the, the, the Elizabeth Short who, who was murdered in a very grotesque way. The murder has never been officially solved, but detectives, Los Angeles detectives, think they know who did it. It's pretty clear if you read certain material who did it, but this man, before he could be arrested, he died. He had probably killed another, other women, too, as a matter of fact. He was a serial killer, probably. Anyway, I, um, I was working on this, and I'm sort of a roundabout way of answering your question. It's such a graphic and, and tragic and painful story about Elizabeth Short being murdered. Norma Jean Baker in the short story knows her, it's quite possible the two girls did know one another. So I wouldn't really feel comfortable showing that story to someone because I'm sort of working on it 
And then when I'm finished, after I finish something, there's still an aura. I mean, I go back to it. I look at it again. I might change it. But I have friends who show their first drafts to their friends. I have many friends who are poets who send out their poems to, uh, you know, by email, and they just get opinions from people. But I would not be comfortable doing that, especially when it's painful material, when it's, it's uh, dark or, or it's violent or it's tragic, because there's almost no response that a person can have. I think that, re that reading is a very private act, and that you, say you're reading Emily Dickinson's poetry, she wrote it for you. She wrote it for an individual. She didn't write it for a crowd. And she wrote it for an individual to read, maybe late at night. And it's private. So it's hard then for a person to come in and have an opinion, especially a husband. And I never felt that I wanted Ray to read this material. And then, of course, he became a full-time editor and publisher with stacks of manuscripts and, and copy editing galleys. So he was working all the time. And for me then to give him more material didn't seem like a good idea. But before I get off this subject, I think it is an interesting subject because Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn and other people, I mentioned Richard Ford and Christina Ford, they show each other their work and they show each other drafts. And Richard and Christina, who are my close friends, they do the most amazing thing they read their work aloud to the other person. They read every page of it. And then after they revise, they read the revision. Now, I couldn't do that because I, <laughs> I'd be reading all the time, you know. And <laughs> my husband would have fallen asleep or <laughs> into a coma or something. But I thought that was a test of love and I, I, I wouldn't really want to read, wouldn't want to read a book to anybody. Maybe it's a flaw in my personality. You've since remarried. Do you, re do you share your work with your husband now? Well, I have since remarried, and I've been so criticized for that. <laughs> really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, widows, widows get criticized for, for things. And, well, we don't, we don't have to go into that. Um, but anyway, my new husband wants to read everything I write, and he insists upon it. I, I wonder, actually, have you ever met anybody who's read everything that you've written? Just myself. <laughs> no, but he, I said, well, I was working on this, and I said, well, you, I don't want you to read this. You're not going to read this. And he said, well, I'm certainly going to read this. I said, well, no, I don't really want you to read this. And he said, well, everybody else will read it. I have to read it. And he's very strong-willed and very, um, <laughs> what am I, I don't want to say anything that gets back to him. He's <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure nobody here will say anything. Is this going to go on YouTube? It's, it's on YouTube right now, actually, probably. Uh, well, I have to be very careful. He's, he's sort of an alpha male, and we know what they're like. <laughs> so um, what I do is I just don't tell him that I finished something. Well, uh, th uh, what was that like for you? You know, you were writing a book, revisiting the, the, the grief and the shattered expectations of one, one marriage while in another. I mean, what was that like for you? Well, everything in my life is, is like nothing else, you know. Uh, it's as if I stepped through a door and the door shut and locked after me. So I'm sort of in this other place. Is that any kind of an answer? So basically, I don't know how to answer that. Well, you, you, you write about, you, you realize that, that this memoir has been a pilgrimage for you. You know, there's a beginning and there's an end in a pilgrimage. Yeah, and sometimes I, I open it, you know, and I, read, I don't really, some parts of it I can't read, but sometimes I'll read a line or two and I'm just overwhelmed with amazement that I would write that down and that um, it all seems to be, it all seems to be true, but I didn't remember that I'd actually written that. But when Gail Godwin said, suffer, Ray was worth it, some people thought that that was an extreme statement, that she shouldn't have said that. Well, the first thing she said was, I called Gail because she knew Ray, we'd known him a long time, 
And I told her, kind of haltingly and stammeringly, that Ray had died. And she said, oh, Joyce, you're going to be, you're going to be so unhappy. That's the first thing she said. And then a little later she said the other. But she speaks from the heart, and she lost her husband about uh, maybe five or six years ago. So she's just t telling the truth. But I think that people ought not to judge one another. And people make compromises with life. They, it's like this bent straw that I mentioned that it's not the straw that you thought you would have when you were 18 years old. You know, they have a nice straw. Later on, you have a straw that's all crooked and bent, but still you're able to breathe through it, you know, and so you adjust to that. And basically, I'm not even speaking in metaphor, it's almost literal, you know, that you sort of get used to that. And then somebody would say to you, oh, how does it feel to be alive or have a bent straw? <laughs> and you say, I don't know. I almost don't remember any other way. This is sort of, this is what I'm doing now. Or if a person's lost a leg, you know, you don't want to say, hey, how does it feel to lose your leg? Um, how are you getting along without your leg? I mean, basically the person was doing okay, you know, it's hobbling, <laughs> hobbling around, <laughs> just hobbling around there, just hobbling around with, with well, one leg's better than no leg. That's the most cheerful thing I'll say tonight. <laughs> <laughs> One leg is a whole lot better than no leg. Just because we have a question from somebody who has one of those brand new fresh straws, what advice do you have for an aspiring writer in the audience who is 13? Oh, that's so nice. Aspiring writer in the audience who's 13. Well, basically, if anything you're interested in, if you want to be an athlete, you want to be a cabinet maker, an opera singer, a writer, you study what other people are doing, what great, great people in that field have done. You uh, learn from your predecessors. You have to read, and basically read anything, anything you're interested in. And I mean, I read the classics, and I have a classical education, so to speak, because I went to university, and have master's degree and all that. That's very helpful to have a solid background in English literature if you're writing in an English language. But basically, you wouldn't even need to have that. If you're, you, there's certain kind of writing that you like, say you love science fiction, you love mystery novels, you just read them. Read all you can read in that genre. And then when you write your own, all that you have read will help you. All comes together like a tributaries in a river. And it's not that you're even going to be looking at a book or copying or being influenced, but you'll be influenced in a, a kind of subliminal way. Join me in thanking Joyce Carol Oates for being such a delight.